0: You can contact Casey at casey.burns at primelending.com. Reach him by phone at 919 710 1864. You can also check out all his reviews at www.closewithcasey.com. Thanks, y'all. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Hunt Lifty Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Luke, running today with Carter, John Ritter, and our special de- uh, guest, excuse me, Dr. Mike Chamberlain. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing well, guys. How about y'all? I'm doing great. We're uh, really excited to, to have you on and, and talk a little turkey. Um, no pun intended there. I'm a dad now, so I can make those jokes. Um, so, for those that don't know, uh, Dr. Chamberlain is a biologist at the uh, Uni- University of Georgia, and he's an expert in wild turkeys. He's been on the Meat Eater podcast. That's where I know the three of us first uh, kind of discovered you and followed you on Instagram and have kind of really enjoyed your content, your Tuesday tips for your turkey tuesdays uh we have a tuesday tip segment that we do for this podcast so it kind of fits in nicely with with what we do
1: okay gotcha i was just gonna
2: say it's great to have you on here uh i know we got introduced to you about two years ago on the meat eater podcast and been watching your content ever since and our kind of podcast is the common man's approach to hunting and it's good to have a guest on here who actually knows what they're talking about and (laughs) <laughs> maybe, maybe put some put well, we'll some myths to rest, yeah, And we'll uh, give us some clarification. But yeah, we really appreciate
1: it. Yeah, not a problem. It's good to be with you,
0: <clears throat> Doctor Chamberlain. You mind just giving us a little bit of your background and uh, kind of how you came up and ended up in the career field you're in?
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, I was a, uh, I was a suburban kid. I grew up in Virginia. Um had a dad that was a weekend warrior, and he um, he worked his tail off, and, and the only days we could go afield were on Saturday. Um, so I kind of went to school all week looking forward to getting out with my dad on Saturdays, and we hunted and fished every weekend. And uh, kind of fast forward to, to my time as a student. I went to Virginia Tech and got a, a fisheries and wildlife science degree and was fortunate to get a, an offer to go to graduate school. And, um, and that's where my, that's where my kind of work with turkey started. I'd been a turkey hunter as a kid, but I didn't know doodly squat about their ecology or, you know, I knew how to kill them. That was about all I knew. And, um, I went to grad school and was fortunate enough to start working with the bird and, and just good fortune, I guess, and hard work. I've worked with turkeys since 1993. That was the first year I started doing research on them. And I've, I've done research on the bird ever since.
2: Well, I think that's what really uh, kind of draws us to your, you know, your your kind of persona really appeals to us because you started off as a hunter, right? You started off killing turkeys and uh, then came into the academia and studying the ecology and biology of the bird. Um, so first and foremost, you're you're a hunter as well as an academic on the topic. So I think that's that's really appealing and it really gives you a lot of teeth and credibility in the hunting community. Um, you're not just some biologist talking
1: head. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. exactly.
2: Right. You're you're a guy who who any of us could see going into the woods together on the weekend and and chasing birds together.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I tell people, you know, I was, like you said, I was a turkey hunter before I was an academic and I'll retire from academia and I'll still be a turkey hunter. So, uh, being a hunter will be on the front end and the tail end of, of my career. Um, I don't personally think you can, you can properly understand, a species like wild turkeys unless you hunt them. Uh, there's only so much that you can gain from a computer screen or a book or a journal article. If you don't go afield and and study this bird both as a student trying to understand their behavior but also as a student of trying to lure them into gunshot range then I don't really think you know the bird. Um, that's just my opinion and I'm sure there's some academics out there that would disagree with me but that um i've learned as much about this bird hunting it as i have studying it yeah i think that's completely
0: valid and i think there's a perspective that a hunter has uh, especially a hunter that cares about learning the biology and the ecology of the the species that you just don't get elsewhere and i I challenge you know folks that i meet that don't like hunting or whatever it's like well we have a deeper understanding when you've spent you know 12 hours in a tree stand watching deer all day Uh, when you are out there calling turkeys listening to them when you're out you know learning trying to learn how to bugle how they talk how they move like you just get a different perspective than you can just like you said from the internet or national geographic or anything else
1: yeah for sure for sure there's a you know there's only so much you can glean from from reading and you know experiencing the field with a bird is is key and i tell people this all the time it's funny i I read things and I learn things through my own research about the bird and then I see it play out in the field. And um, that's pretty cool because you, you know, I see something on a computer screen looking at GPS points or something. And then I go and experience what I just saw on the screen real time. In fact, that just happened to me last week on a hunt in Florida. Um, You know, so that's, that's pretty cool. And it's gratifying because, I think it offers me perspective that, that I wouldn't otherwise have. Whereabouts in Virginia are you from? I grew up outside of Richmond. Um, okay. the area used to be pretty rural. Now it's just basically part of the city, but, um, yeah, I grew up in Virginia and my family's entire family's from Virginia originally and, um, haven't been, haven't been there since. Um, we, we left Virginia and, I went to Mississippi and then went to Louisiana. Now I'm in Georgia, and you know, God only knows where I'll be five years from now. We'll see. Yeah, I'm from the southwestern
0: part of the state, and I also went to Virginia Tech. So
1: okay, yeah, that's pretty part, a pretty part of the world.
0: Yeah, gorgeous. I can't wait to get back. But but uh, we'll, we'll jump right into kind of the the hunting side of things because um, that's you know. I don't really fancy myself much of a turkey hunter. I'm not very good at all. I've been doing it dabbling in it for a couple of years. John's definitely got the most experience, and Carter's put a couple of birds in the ground, but he's also pretty new. So we've probably got some sort of newbie questions for you. But uh, you know, as as we look at it, the calling is like the big, the 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 big popular thing. Everybody wants to listen to you know Will Primos and run all the calls, and you know how important do you think, uh, in your experience is the actual skill of a caller and like, like, does it, cause I've done some pretty bad calls and gotten gobbles back and called mm-hmm. birds in. And so how is that based on other hunting pressure? Is that based on the time of year? And like, what, what's that look like?
1: Well, I mean, there's no question. There's some really gifted callers. I've, I've hunted with some folks that were much better callers than I am. And it does, and it can make a difference for sure. Uh, but if you listen to wild birds they they have a very um unique vocabulary from bird to bird you know if you really get close to birds and you really are lucky enough to listen to their vocalizations they there are differences and we think with pretty clear certainty that that's one of the ways they recognize each other is through voice Um, which makes sense for a bird that vocalizes the way turkeys do both both males and females so I think it's important. I I don't think it's as important as some people make it out to be. Um, I mean, I don't personally call a whole lot. I know people that call a lot and they do okay. And I know people like me that don't call a lot and they do okay. I I personally spend a lot more time worrying about figuring out where the bird wants to be than trying to figure out how to sweet talk it. Um, That's just my, my hunting philosophy is, uh, don't call a whole lot, call when you have to. And once you get their attention, just kind of let, let the hunt play out. That's, that's kind of the way I hunt, um, with some exceptions. I mean, I've, sometimes you're in situations like we were in last week that, you know, the wind's blowing super hard and it's tough. I mean, it's hard for, I mean, we were watching birds gobble and couldn't hear them. Um, so in those situations, you know, I probably sounded ridiculous because I was, I was calling so loud, but the conditions kind of dictated that.
3: And Mike, I had a question in regards to calling before the birds fly down. I know that's a hot topic as well. What is your opinion on, you know, duration of and and frequency of calling before a bird flies down, if you're flying a bird and you know where it's roosted?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a, (laughs) that's a, that question you'll get if you ask 10 different turkey hunters you'll get 10 different answers um i tend to either do one of two things if if i've got a pretty good idea where the bird is going to pitch out when they do leave the roost i'll i'll usually wait and call either right what i think is going to be right before he pitches down or right after he gobbles when he hits the ground. I will call to a bird on the roost, but usually as soon as they respond to me and I, I'm certain they know where I'm at, I just shut up. Um, I've been bitten by that, that if I keep calling, he'll keep gobbling in the tree bit quite a few times in my career and um, only a few times did that end well. I'm a firm believer in, the, I guess the older I get, um, I'm a real firm believer in leaving a little bit of uncertainty in the bird's head. Um, if you call loud, long, and often, he knows exactly where you're at. He can pinpoint the tree that you're sitting beside. But if you call really soft and subtle, it leaves a little doubt in his mind. He needs to come check it out. Um, that's, that's my philosophy. And I have a couple of buddies that, that I hunt with that have pretty much the same philosophy, you know, just call enough to get his attention and then kind of let him, let him dictate the playing field from there. If he, if he walks off, fine, you know, let's, let's shift gears. But if he's, if he's headed my way, I'm going to, I'm going to let that little seed of doubt be planted in his mind. And they know, I mean, they hear so different than we do. They, their hearing is the way their ears function and transmit signals to their brain. They, they are capable of pinpointing locations with spooky clarity which everybody that's turkey hunted can has seen this where you call and a bird walks right up to you from god only knows how far away and it's 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 eerie how they can pinpoint sounds so i tend to just try to remind myself of that when i'm calling particularly if he's in a tree because not only can he hear you well but he's now up above you and his ability to pinpoint sound is even more acute when he's you know on an elevated perch like a roost
2: yeah, that's, that's really important for me to hear. And for the record, I'm going to take everything you say over the next however many minutes as gospel, because there are so many turkey myths out there and everybody is a turkey expert that you ever hunt with and everybody hunts differently. And that seed of doubt is so easy to creep into your own mind, right? Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I
1: need to call more. I need to do right. this. I didn't do that. He didn't answer me. He didn't do right. this. He didn't that. And I mean, you sit there and you're looking down the gun barrel and your heart's pounding and you're like, come on, come on, come on, come on. And when he did gobbles and he's 200 yards farther away, you're like, I suck at this, you know, and, (laughs) um, you just got, I, you know, I don't know. When I was younger, I wasn't very patient of of a hunter. Now I'm, I kind of look at it as a, you know, I'm, I'm here. I'm the hunt is the hunt. And if I'm lucky enough to have the whole day to myself, um, then I just plan to be out there it doesn't bother me if he doesn't play ball at seven o'clock I you know the bird I shot last week uh, I shot at six o'clock in the evening you know we hunted that bird all day so um, I'm willing to be patient and kind of let let things come to me I certainly was not like that when I was younger
2: six o'clock in the evening seems like that seems like the latest I've I've ever heard of you'll you'll hear guys talk about you know a lot of guys like the the afternoon gobble, right? If I hear a, if I hear a Tom gobble after one o'clock, he's, he's good as dead, right? Uh, it's six o'clock. Have you found that's a pretty good time?
1: No, it was I mean, we were in South Florida, so it was, it wasn't getting dark until, you know, very late. Um, what I've noticed and I've seen this with Rio's and I've to a lesser degree with Merriam's, but particularly with Rio's and Eastern's and Osceola's when it's super hot, the day, They, they change their behavior. They loaf a lot more during the middle of the day. They don't, they don't move. We found very clearly with our research that they go to areas that are, it may only be four or five degrees cooler than the ambient temperature in other parts of the, where they're at, but they go to areas where they can, where they can cool off because turkeys have a, you know, they have a, obviously they're feathered, but they don't have the capability of dissipating heat as easily as many animals so when it gets hot they go hide in cooler shade and when it's 90 degrees i mean birds they're not moving from late morning until very late in the afternoon they're just not moving they have no motivation to do that so yeah it was it was late in the afternoon but it i mean they were they were foraging you know they were up moving around headed back towards where they were roosting and um yeah we were fortunate enough to kind of get in front of them when you uh you were saying before you know, you don't
0: call as much, you like to figure out where the they want to go and kind of get there. Where does the turkey want to go? You know, is it, is it <laughs> I wish I knew. stuff.
1: <laughs> I wish is I knew. It, they they uh what you'll see from GPS track data is they fly down with an agenda. We just don't always know what that is. They they have a routine, we think that we're going to find that kind of just eyeballing, you know, spitballing the data at this point. It does appear that uh, these birds may have different ways of of looking at what they're going to do based on where they're roosting in their home range. Um, we know that there are some roosts that are more important than others, that these like hub roosts where... He may roost there 40% of the time, and then he's got six other roosts that he roosts at you know, 10% or whatever. So what he does when he's roosting at one of those really important roosts may be different from what he's doing when he roosts elsewhere. But what you do see is they have these very recursive movements, and what I mean by that is they tend to backtrack themselves um, where they're, they're back and forth, back and forth over the, over the same pieces of ground, particularly when they're traveling. And obviously that's a, we think it's a safety issue. You know, they feel comfortable moving through certain parts of their range. Um, that's what I look for when I'm scouting. That's one of the things I'm looking for is where are they moving? How are they, what are they using to get from A to B? Whether it's, you know, they're leaving this ridge top and they're going to a, a field or they're leaving here and they're going over there. And obviously with the Easterns, it's hard because most of the time you can't see the bird, you know. And if they don't gobble, you, it's hard to keep track of them. That's what we ran into last week. They just weren't gobbling very much, so it was it was hard to keep track of them. You know, as you go out west, obviously, y'all know you can see, you know, you can see more, so it's a little easier to scout. But that's what I've noticed from the from the the data we look at is there's a lot of back and forth with this bird, and there's a lot of their range they don't use. So, in other words, if you drew a, a big circle around all of the places they visit. There are holes inside of their range they never go to. So if you think about yourself being in one of those holes trying to call a bird to an area, he doesn't go anyway. And I think just by random luck, that's what many of us end up doing. We end up in places of their home range they're just not using naturally. And if you try to call an animal into a place he doesn't want to be, it you better sound pretty good.
2: So when you're talking about home range, I, I hunt in in, uh, in Dahlonega, Georgia. I live just south mm-hmm. of Dahlonega. Um, so I'm just, I don't know if you live. Just north of in, me, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, and uh, I hunt some smaller properties. One's 80 acres and one's 60 acres and one's 17 acres, just random properties I've, I've accrued permission on. When we're talking about that home range and where the turkeys are traveling, with small properties like that, they could just not be there. Right. Mm-hmm. Sure.
1: Uh, yeah.
2: What is, what is, what is the range of a Turkey look like? Like how, I guess, is it patternable? Is, is it, how frequent are they, you know, going to come back to that property? Cause I, I, sometimes I feel like I don't, I just don't hit it on a day that they're there and I yeah. can't
1: be. Well, yeah. Terrible, what they, what they do is they, so from winter to spring, they, they shift their home range is quite a bit. They'll usually, they'll move from a wintering habitats, which in, you know, you said Dahlonega, that that's hardwoods. So they're, they're going to be in hardwood areas. Um, then they shift to more upland areas where they're going to breed. They, they have a pretty strong fidelity to these places. So you tend to see turkeys in the same areas year after year after year during the spring. And that's why, because they, these breeding areas are important to their, to their mating system. Um, in the scenario you just described, you could literally have birds there one day and they could be gone for a week. Um, and I'm sure that's what you've seen when you scouted for birds they are there, they're gone, they're there, they're gone. What they're doing is they're just, you know, those toms may have five to 10 home, um, I'm sorry, roost sites in their home range. And just depending on which roost he's at, you may or may not have him on that property, given the size of those properties. And he may or may not gobble because we know that, you know, some birds just don't gobble when we think they, they should, or we pray that they will. So you put all that together and, you know, hunting smaller properties like that, I I have the same scenario, you know, it's literally a coin flip, you know, will I hear him? Who knows? And if I do hear him, chances are he's not going to be there tomorrow.
2: Right. Right. Makes a lot of sense. Side, side question. Uh, Do you, are most of the questions you receive very specific scenarios from people who are turkey hunting enthusiasts? expecting a, uh, just a one, a one-time answer, like solve it all answer. And that's, that's like most of what you get asked.
1: Um, you would be shocked if I sent you a list of some of the questions I've been asked. <laughs> I'm sure um, you
2: field a lot of questions.
1: Some of them are pretty specific. Like here's a, you know, I've had people message me maps and say, here's where the bird was roosted. What do you, what do I do? And I'm like, hell, I don't know. I mean, I have no idea. I don't, hunt the property (laughs) you're on, and I'm certainly not a, you know, I wouldn't consider myself a a turkey killer. I mean, I'd do okay, but I get my tail kicked more often than not, which is the way it's supposed to be.
2: That's the name of the game. Uh,
1: But I also get a lot of questions about just general scenarios, like what we've talked about here, like just more speaking in generalities, what do you do or what is the data shown in this situation? You know, turkeys are, you know, I, I say this all the time, sometimes we're just not part of their agenda. And it doesn't matter what you do as a hunter. You're not going to kill that bird that day. It just, it is what it is. And that's part of the fun. That's part of why it's so frustrating and maddening um, when it doesn't work out. But boy, when it does work out, that's when it, you know, that's why it's so addictive is because it's, it's hard and it should be hard. The Tom should win more often than not, not on, not the other way around. Yeah,
2: absolutely. That the highest of highs and then, the lowest of lows. I feel like every season I go between thing and it's the dumbest bird in the world to the smartest creature on earth. And I don't know what the data shows in that regard, but
1: they're just incredibly weary in their own habitats and they're in their, in their space, they're extremely intelligent. Um, as you know, as brain power goes, I mean, look at the size of their brain. They couldn't be, but so intelligent. But you put them in their environment and they're, they're pretty tough to deal with. They have incredible vision. Uh, they have a sense of place. They know where they're at. They know where sounds come from and they have tremendous hearing, although it's different than ours. And you put all that together, if they could smell, you know, you hear this all the time on the internet, you know, turkeys could smell like a deer, you'd never kill one. And there's probably a lot of truth to that. If they had, if they had a sense of smell like a whitetail, we'd be in trouble
2: but the vision part is true. That is, that is
1: fact. It is as good as everybody says. Yep. And they have different series of rods and cones in their eyes than we do. So they don't see their environment like we do, but the way that their eyes work on their head, if you look at their head, they have almost a 360 degree field of view and they turn their head like a periscope constantly. You see them watch, you know, they're shifting their head constantly and that allows them to essentially have a full field of view around them. So, and you know this, you know, you, you think the bird's facing away from you and you try to move the gun and they take off. I mean, they, their vision, it's not that it's super acute. It's actually, it's, it's actually monocular. It's like, a, you know, it's not binocular like we are, but you put two monocular eyes together and it functions incredibly well. And, in, you know, in their case. Going back a little bit to the smaller property stuff and uh, kind of some
0: things that, you know, we might be able to do. And I still have a family farm back in Virginia that I go back to periodically and hunt turkeys. And we do, a, we try to, we don't do a lot, but as we can, we try to do some uh, habitat management for whitetails, a couple small food plots, you know, putting out lime and you know, trimming up invasives and that sort of thing. And I, I know there's a lot of overlap between improving the habitat for whitetail and then turkeys as well. But mm. is there anything specifically that we should be looking at doing as far as management, habitat management goes to increase, um, you know, the the turkey population or the, the turkeys wanting to stay around that property specifically?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you're dealing with a small property, I'd say try to play to your strengths. You know, try to identify... What resources, if you're seeing birds every year, then identify why they're there and try to maintain or improve that, whatever that is. Um, You know, sometimes on small properties, that that can be a tough sell in the winter or spring when birds are moving quite a bit. It's much, excuse me, much less difficult in the summer because their home ranges are really small. But I usually tell people, you know, if you've got a small piece of property, don't try to be a jack of all trades. You know, Don't try to say, well, I'm going to have a little wintering habitat. I'm going to do a little bit of this. I'm going to do a little bit of that. Don't just hang your hat on that. Try to figure out what is it that these birds are here for every year when I see them. Are they foraging in some of these food plots? Are they roosting on the edge of my property because there's a cypress break there? Whatever the scenario is. And minimally try to maintain those areas. And if possible, improve them Um you know, at least in my, in this area of Georgia, it's really common for birds to just leave properties. You know, the average landowner doesn't own that much land here in, where I live. And so the, the common theme that you hear from people is the turkeys were there and then they were gone or they showed up, you know, in March and then in, in May they were gone. Or the, the worst scenario is they were there all winter and then come turkey season, they were gone. Well, in those scenarios, it's tough because what, what you're dealing with there is, you know, you're, you had pretty good fall and winter habitat and your neighbors got much better breeding habitat. Um, so in that case, you know, I figure out, okay, how do I maintain what I've got? And can I put some resources into creating a resource they don't have currently on this property? I give you a, a scenario, um, this property that I'm, that I work on here at my house, it's been two years since we did prescribe burning at several of the stands. It had been three years and one, it had been four years and over the past, particularly three years, but let's say two years, I've seen fewer and fewer and fewer birds. Um, and we were just not in a situation where we could burn. And, and this year we were, and we've now gone from having you know, pretty decent nesting habitat, but not a lot of good areas where birds could strut, where they could display where there's quality forage. Now we've got six hundred acres of that. And the number of birds that are suddenly there that were somewhere in the neighborhood is pretty astonishing. I mean there's turkeys everywhere on this property. And it's because the management scenario shifted enough where the fulcrum was moved enough where now all you know I've got birds. Now unfortunately Two years from now, because of the, the fire return interval, I'm not. I'm going to go back to not having birds. They're going to probably shift to my neighbors, and and that's a scenario I see quite a bit. You know, you do something and you you see a benefit from it, and then you may have to deal with the law of averages for a year or two until you're able to to do that activity again. Timber harvest, thinning, timber stand improvements, prescribed fire, you know, whatever.
2: We need to figure out what the sweet spot is for your farm, Luke, and try and you know exploit that or you know capitalize on that.
0: Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, I'm no expert, but I mean, I think it's pretty good mix for turkey habitat. It's 400 acres. You've got a pretty major creek bottom, good pastures. It's a mix of pastures, hardwoods. You've got some pine stands, plantation planted pines, uh, high ridges, kind of typical for farm country in you know Mm -hmm. southern southwestern virginia grayson county so um and it holds a lot of birds uh they're just they weren't hunted for a long time and i feel like we had a one good season and then we've been pretty well hunted the past few years and we definitely felt a difference in the pressure yeah they seem to stop gobbling a lot quicker yeah. Um, we've noticed, and I was re-listening to the meat eater, uh, podcast that you were on uh, last night, actually to prep for this. And, you know, that was, I was finding that very interesting and listening to it again after the experiences we've had is, um, we, we feel, I think we feel that pressure cause we've noticed that you're hunting it, you know, get in Friday evening if we can, depending on the time of the season, cause Virginia, you have to stop hunting right at noon and the early season. Um, but then hunting Saturday, it's pretty good, but then Sunday they're, they're just quiet. And then yeah. the next week, you know, don't hunt all week the next weekend, same, same kind of cyclic thing. Do you think that on a property that's around that size, 400 ish acres, would it, is it more beneficial to just stick to like the Southern part of the property one day and then the Northern part of the property or is their home range so big that it's not really going to make that big of a difference? They're just going to feel the pressure in general.
1: I mean, most times are going to cover that in a day. Um, you know, so, and, and, but maybe not, but You know, you kind of have to think about the pressure from their perspective. You know, pressure is not just us sitting there calling them or spooking them or it's all of the things that are associated with us moving around. Whether it's us walking, us driving, shutting car doors, sounds that they're not used to hearing, which is bizarre because, you know, you can go in suburban areas and you can clap your hands outside of your car window and get a bird to gobble. But that's not how they're supposed to function and so what you're describing to me is is a common scenario where you start hunting you have a pretty good day and then the second day is is crappy and you go home and lick your wounds and wait for the next friday afternoon and we've actually seen that in our research on sites that were hunted in, in little short pulses you know gobbling activity would be really good and then it would tail off and as you know, when hunting stopped for the week, it would pick back up. And then by the end of the week, it would be really high again. You'd allow hunters to come in. It would go back down, come back up when there are no hunters on the site. And it would oscillate like that all season. That's a pretty common scenario. Do you see any specific trends on kind of what
0: that recovery time looks like? Is it, is it a day, two days, a week before that pressure to the gobble drop off to coming back?
1: It was a few days on that site. Now that's just, you know, that's one study site under one scenario. Um, what we've seen on sites where the pressure, even if the pressure wanes, but it's still pretty high. So think about a really heavily hunted public piece of pro- property where there's people everywhere. And then after about two weeks, hunting pressure starts to decline, but there's still a lot of people out there. It's just nothing what you know like what it was the first week we see on those study sites that gobbling doesn't pick back up. It just continues to decline until it's almost zero. And if they do gobble, they gobble in the tree and hit the ground and that's it. Um, which from their perspective, if you think about it, makes sense. I mean, they, they gobble to attract attention, but attracting the wrong kind of attention has a way of making you change your behavior. Um, that's what they do.
0: So are they intelligent enough that this is learned that they feel it? Or is it a selection piece that, and I know it's probably a combination of both. Would be my guess is that the the real talkative ones are getting getting schwacked, and then the the ones that are adapting quicker and shutting up are the ones that are continuing on.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's both. You know, not all vocal birds are shot. You know, some are, and then some of that is just the birds that are remaining on the landscape are changing their behavior. They're just not gobbling as much. And gobbling in the tree and not on the ground is. I mean, that's that's an evolutionary adaptive advantage right there when you gobble in a tree you're safe for the most part when you gobble on the ground you're you're attracting attention from things that can sneak up on you and eat you so uh if if you're going to gobble at all do it in the tree where you're much more safe and then when you get on the ground just shut up and that's that's a lot of what we see on our on our hunted sites
3: when we see a decrease in gobbling do you think that's indicative of those turkey actually moving off the property Like we see with whitetail, when a lot of pressure comes in and they'll move from, you know, the wooded areas out into the swamp where it's more secluded, or do you think the turkey, you talked about them moving off of, you know, a small property, you think that's just due to their natural movement tendencies and, you know, moving towards food or where hens are, or is the presence of hunters enough to actually push a bird off a property?
1: Both. Yeah, both. We, we've seen... So even on large public lands, we see birds that will leave and go on the private land as soon as the hunting season starts. You know, they'll go to areas where they're where they're not getting disturbed as often, if at all. But we also see with, we track gobbling data with these, these autonomous, they're like a trail camera that's collecting sound. And they're stationary, so they're stuck on the side of a tree, so they're not moving around. And we will see that there will be a bird or multiple birds there and then they're gone and there will be zero gobbling activity at that spot for, for hundreds of yards around that spot for weeks and then all of a sudden there's gobbling again for two or three days or five days and then it stops again so some of it is just birds are just moving around and they're ending up in areas but they're not spending a lot of time there Uh, if that makes sense. And some of it is they're actually moving to another part of the landscape and they're just not coming back, uh, which we've seen clearly I've posted some of these figures on social media where we GPSed hunters as well. Uh, hunters carry GPS units in their pocket and we had toms that were marked and we'd see the interactions between the hunter and the, and the bird. And sometimes, sometimes the birds would just take off and go a mile and run on the private land and just stay there. We've had several birds did that, and they stayed on private land the entire season. And then as soon as the season ended, they went back to where they had be, you know, began. So they definitely sense pressure, no question.
3: Okay, that, that was, yeah. So if we look at the classic turkey scenario of I have a bird at 50 yards, and it's been there for 20 minutes, and it finally catches me moving or, you know, looking to try to find them, and it, and it busts out, there is a solid chance that that bird will leave vacate the property.
1: Well, not always. Sometimes what we have seen clearly is they are going to move some distance away from that spot. Um, it may not be a mile. It may only be a couple hundred yards, but they are going to move away from that spot where they interacted with you. Uh, in some cases, they look, they appear to just go back to doing what, whatever it is they were going to do. And in some cases, they do these more extreme behaviors where they just, you know, take off on a walkabout or, or something similar. And then we've had birds. We had this one bird that we called Lucifer that, um, he was in Louisiana and he, he didn't care. We, we tried to kill this bird intentionally. We hunted him trying to kill him and you could not kill that bird. I'm sure he died of old age, but he spent his entire spring season within a hundred yards of one of the major access trails on this public ground. And there's no telling how many people walked by that bird. And they never knew he was there. Um, He just had adapted a strategy where he just hunkered down in place and figured out a way to navigate around us. And and he lived his whole spring within a, a tiny home range with hunters walking through it constantly. In fact, it was one of the more popular trails on the area. And they had parking areas where you had to walk from the parking area. So everybody that would walk would walk by this bird. And he just stayed there. It's like, you know, you see examples of deer that are hanging out in their check stations, you know, in places like that. They they figure out a strategy that doesn't involve heading to the hills, and they make it work.
0: Do you think a bird like that is missing out on, the? is he sacrificing the breeding to stay alive? Or is he still able to get out and, and breed when he's got that such a tight home range?
1: I honestly don't know. I mean, in their world, the hens are, you know, the hens go to the toms. So if, if if he's an older, if he's a dominant bird, hens are finding him.'re they're, they're going to go find him. If he's sexy and showy and brightly colored and he you know he's at the top of the roost, if you will, he's going to breed. Um, does it have some influence on their their breeding and their mating system? Maybe we just don't really know what that is. You know we don't know if if some of these activities translate to some you know disruption maybe it's very likely we just, you know, that's why we're doing the studies we're doing. It's just trying to figure out, you know, what does, like in my case, I do a lot of work with, with hunting. We're trying to figure out, you know, what, what are we doing when we're interacting with this bird? How's the bird responding to us? What, you know, are they changing their behavior? So we're doing a lot of work in this. And it's really interesting because what we find is that there aren't really, there are no average toms. They all have their unique personalities and they all behave a little differently. There's not a script for this is what's going to happen. If I bump him, like to John's question is like, well, if if I bump him, what's he going to do? Hell, I don't know. And he probably doesn't know either. Um, (laughs) He just reacts and, and what he does may be completely different from a reaction standpoint than the next bird. It's just hard. It's almost impossible to predict it.
3: You mentioned uh the hens coming to the dominant bird. Can you speak a little bit on the pecking order of turkey and the effect if any of um you know killing or or the you know the dominant bird in area dying on the pecking order?
1: Yeah, so they I mean they have social hierarchies. They have these these pecking orders that that structure their lives from the time they're hatched actually. They if you watch turkey poults, they're fighting from the time they come out of the nest. When they leave the nest, they're constantly in strife. So they, they have these defined pecking orders by sex. Females have, you know, an order and males have an order. And these pecking orders change as they, as they age. So if, for instance, they're raised around other birds when they're young, and then they end up in winter flocks with birds they don't know. And so there's constant arguing and bitching and moaning in the turkey world. And you, you just have to watch turkeys. All you have to do is watch them for five minutes to, know, to see this. They constantly are after each other. Uh, and when somebody makes a wrong move, everybody goes after that bird. Um, that's, that's just kind of how they function. And those, those pecking orders structure their lives, whether it's who eats when, and you watch birds when they're foraging, if, if one bird finds something and makes an, an, you know, an alert that, hey, I found something, the other birds are going to go to that spot and particularly dominant birds. They, um, they get preferential treatment when it comes to foraging. We know that dominant hens breed first with toms. They go to nest first. So theoretically, they're getting choice choice of, of nesting sites within their range. And we know that dominant toms breed more than other toms. We know, I mean, science has clearly shown that, that there are some toms that are just better and they tend to disproportionately breed um, with the hens that are are around them. So to your question about removing those toms, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty there in in that um, if you shoot a dominant bird, like what happens right then? We just don't know what, what we do know is that the pecking order kind of dissolves and you, they put it back together sometimes probably pretty quickly, sometimes maybe not as quickly. And I think ultimately it depends on how many other toms are there in that area. And when you remove that dominant bird, um, if you look at other species that have mating systems like turkeys, research has shown that when you remove the bird matters and how many of them you remove matters. So in other words, if you go into the population and you take out a dominant bird and then take out another dominant bird, some of these females will delay their breeding while they try to determine who the best Tom is. Um, now, this is that work was on prairie chickens, but turkeys and prairie chickens have a lot of similarities in how they they mate. Um, we just don't know with turkeys, um, but I think it's logical to assume that there is some effect depending on the timing and how many of these toms you're taking out. We just don't know what that effect is at this point. So it's not, you know,
0: next man up. It's a complete reshuffling of the deck when that yeah. dominant bird's killed. Yeah. They yeah, I mean, if
1: you, a- you kind of think about it too, you know, sexual selection, the way it works is, you know, there's a dominant bird. He's there for a reason. He research has shown that they have lower parasite loads. Uh, they are more iridescent. They're showier looking. So in other words, they're prettier and th- that matters to, you know, a hen. It's like you're saying, well, we're going to take out the best guy and we're just going to assume you're going to just go mate with the second guy. Well, he's the second guy for a reason. You know, he, he didn't he didn't beat out the the dominant bird. And there, you know, research years, decades ago showed this that when you go in and you look at those those dominant birds in these groups, there are clear fitness advantages to breeding with them. Again, lower parasites, better iridescence, uh, more aggressive. So if he disappears, it's kind of illogical to think the hen would go out of hell with it that's fine whatever I'll just go the other guy that's standing there he's just as good. well no, he's not just as good um, he's, He wasn't the dominant bird for a reason. so there's there's a, a chance that turkeys are functioning like prairie chickens do and and if that's the case, then it, it's logical to think that there may in some cases be a, a delay for some of these hens that okay, wait a minute the bird that I've been breeding with for the past three weeks is gone. And I'm, I'm a, you know, a couple weeks out from my laying sequence. What am I going to do? Well, maybe I'm going to look around and see, you know, who the most, you know, who the next dominant bird is, or if there's a lot of strife going on, maybe I'm just going to give it a few days and see how they settle themselves out. Uh, I think it, and if you talked, and I talk with people a lot about this, because it's, it's a kind of a contentious question in some people's minds, because there is so much uncertainty. It's like, people want answers. Well, what happens if it's like, well, it it depends. Um, We don't know. And when you say, well, you don't know, it's like, well, see, I told you, you didn't know. But I think, you know, in my experience, uh, I've seen properties that what, what they believed was the dominant bird was killed and the property went into chaos. You know, turkeys seemed like they were gobbling everywhere and there was a lot of competition for a few days and then it went quiet. And I've seen situations where people tell me, you know what, that bird was with all those hens. I killed him and it's been quiet ever since. Uh, you know, I haven't seen a bird. I haven't heard a bird and those hens left type of thing. I think there's just so much we don't understand about their mating system, and we probably never will. I mean, there's some things about this we just won't ever, ever understand, and, and that's okay, you know. Um, but we do want to get as many answers as, as we can. And this, to your question, you know, that is a really hard thing to study because you really need captive birds to do it. You need wild birds that you can hold in captivity and remove the dominant bird experimentally. That's, that's how you test that question and you'd need captive wild flocks to do that. And that there aren't any right now that are being maintained for science. So, um, that's, that's a research need we have, but it's going to take some work to answer it.
2: As far as research, research goes right now, Dr. Chamberlain, what, uh, what kind of research are you doing, uh, currently?
1: Um, most of my stuff right now is, is GPS marking of, of both hens and toms. Uh, we put these little, these little backpack GPS units on them. They collect tons of locations. And, um, so we know where they roost. We know where they nest. We know where they take their broods. We know when they die. Um, we're doing that mostly with hens, but we also mark a lot of toms as well. Um, I'm doing a lot of work with with uh, genetics right now where we pull blood from these birds. We, we look at relatedness amongst birds in the population. We look at how relatedness is influencing their, their movements and their behaviors, trying to understand some of these complexities we just talked about, trying to understand some of that and tease some things out. We're doing a lot of disease testing right now with those same blood samples, trying to get information about viruses that could be affecting the bird. Um, I'm doing a lot of gobbling work right now where we monitor gobbling activity across sites. I've got, I think probably 15 or more sites that we're monitoring gobbling activity on. And, uh, and people ask, well, why would you, you know, we know turkeys gobble. Well, we know clearly that gobbling is the primary determinant of hunter satisfaction. You know, we want to hear turkeys gobble. And we also know that gobbling tracks reproduction um, there's some clear increases in gobbling as birds get close to the laying sequence. So the toms are, they're perceiving that these hens are receptive and they're, they, they ramp up their competition. And ultimately, we hope that we're going to be able to use some gobbling, the gobbling data to, to back our way into an abundance estimate for how many birds are out there. You know, at least a minimum number of, of males that are in the population. We're hoping to get there. The cool thing about the gobbling data is once you collect it, it's permanent. You have it forever, right? So as we can improve technology and come up with these more st- sophisticated statistical tools, we can always go back to the data we're collecting right now, five years from now, and say, okay, here's how the population has changed. So there's, I think there's real value in archiving data like this because it is so powerful. Uh, because at some point we're going to be able to do these things we haven't been able to do, such as figure out how many birds are out there. We just, we just need a little more time and, and we need the data, which we're collecting.
3: Just to backtrack a touch, I apologize if this is off topic, but or off agenda. When you, if you're able to successfully identify a dominant bird on a property or in a flock, and let's say you're, you're correct. And that's the bird that is dominant in the area. Do you personally change your hunting approach, whether it be calling a decoy, you know, you see a lot of guys running full fans when they're legal in their state and those dominant birds running 200 yards across the field to meet them Mm -hmm. yeah, or set up location. But is there anything, if you are correct, and that is the dominant bird in the area, are there any tactics that you can take in order to have better success?
1: You're going to have to ask somebody that would hunt that bird if i knew it was a dominant bird and and he was breeding with hens at that point i'd i wouldn't kill him myself um if if i had five birds to choose from and it was you know it was around nesting activity then i wouldn't worry who i shot but if i in your scenario if i had that one bird and i knew he was running the roost and and he was a primary breeder Unless it was later in the season when I was pretty certain that you know my hens were, were laying and and incubating, I wouldn't I I wouldn't use any of those techniques myself. But I, um, those birds and that and honestly, guys, that's one of the that's one of the big hot topics in the turkey world right now is is the notion that you know when I was growing up, you didn't kill that turkey if you had if you had a bird that was with I just give you a scenario. He had been with 10 hens for, for a couple of weeks and you'd watch him copulate with one of those hens. And then the next day you'd, you'd see him copulating with another one and you could not call that turkey away from those hens. I mean, you just couldn't do it. I tried for years and years and years. Um, and that's one of the, that's one of the the concerns you hear in the turkey hunting ranks right now from a lot of people, not everybody, but I, I hear it a lot. Is that the advent of some of these tools that we now have? Birds that were once unkillable are not anymore. And does that matter? We don't know. Could it matter? Well, certainly. I think almost anything could matter. That's another tough topic, like the dominant bird question. That's just hard to answer. You know, it's hard to study that. Does does the decoy matter? Does the fan matter? well, yeah, it may matter killing that one bird, but does that matter at a population level? You know, that's the, that's kind of the way I look at it. And I, and I don't know the answer. I, I honestly don't know the answer.
2: And what we're referring to or alluding to, right, is uh, turkey reaping. Reaping, right? Yeah. yeah. Right, yep. which is where you use a fan and they charge across the field towards you, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, I had, yeah go ahead.
2: Uh, I had two... My two turkey hunting mentors, one went to UGA, and I, I believe he may have been a student of yours, uh, Andrew Abernathy. Um, I messaged him and my other buddy, Avery. I said, hey.
1: The name <laughs> sounds familiar.
2: We got Dr. Chamberlain coming on. What do you got for me? And they both said uh, separately to ask about your your thoughts on, on turkey reaping. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. It is controversial, right? It's uh, illegal in, I don't know, four or five states or something like that.
1: It's, I mean, it's polarizing, you know, and, and I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be hypocritical. I, you know, I've seen turkeys respond to those fans. I mean, it, it, I don't think there's any question that in certain situations, the use of that, that tool results in a harvest that otherwise wouldn't happen right then. It may happen the next day or two days later or a week later. I've seen it with my own eyes. Birds that I know would not have been harvested that day were shot. Um, again, I try to remove myself from speculation about that because I, I don't get paid to speculate. But, um, but it, it is something I do think about. And I try to back myself out of it and, and remind myself that, Mike, what really matters is at a population level. Not did that bird die, but are, are we changing harvest rates and the timing of harvest in a way that will matter to the bird and that we just don't know? Um, you know, and I know there's a thousand opinions on this and there are some people that are going to be listening to me. They're going to be like, you are so full of it, you know, damn well. And if I knew I'd answer the question with that knowledge, I suspect I have my own suspicions. Like I said, I've been in situations where I'm certain in my mind and in my heart, that bird would not have died that day. Maybe he would have died the next day. I don't know that. But again, until we can get some information at a broad enough scale to understand what it does, if anything, we're just left speculating and arguing and, um, you know, and I kind of see the decoys and the reaping as two separate issues, um. You know, people will often lump them together, but I don't think they are, they're not entirely mutually exclusive. I mean, but, but I think if you've watched turkeys enough, not respond to a decoy and then suddenly respond to a, to a fan there, you know, that fan in their world elicits a different response and it's supposed to that fan, that fan is, you watch a bird strut and when he makes that initial rush to drop those wings, that's when that fan comes up and that fan stays up until that reaction's over with. As long as he's excited, that fan's up um, and they will, as you all know, they'll even com- repeatedly rush forward. Those couple of steps, keep that fan up because that fan's important for his display. When something happens and he drops down out of that strut and that fan goes down, his attitude is different. You can watch their behavior. So that fan matters to them. Otherwise, you wouldn't see hens that that strut around each other when they're when they're fighting and, and trying to you know be dominant to other hens. The fan matters. It matters as a poult. That's why you see pouls that are strutting. That you know that fan does something to this bird that we don't fully understand. We just kind of guess as, You know, based on their reactions. But I think it's more complicated than that since, since both sexes react to it, you know, they use it. Both, both sexes use that tail.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I've got (laughs) some chickens in the backyard here. And even those little bantams, as soon as they reach seven, eight weeks old, they'll start, you know, feeling themselves and fluffing up and strutting a little bit. So clearly there's a a biological response to it going on there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that's going to be a topic that's going to continue to come up. And, you know, ultimately, us arguing as hunters about it is not going to help a damn thing. It's not going to help us to fight it e- with each other on social media, and it's not going to help the resource for us to point fingers and say, well, you're hunting that way, and I think that's wrong. Ultimately, it's going to hinge on agencies deciding it's either appropriate or it's not. And if it's a legal, appropriate way to hunt, then we have to be really careful about pointing fingers at each other Uh, That's a slippery slope because then it's divisive, you know, and, and we don't need to be dividing ourselves. Although in this, you know, this topic's really controversial and polarizing, but hell, I mean, look at almost any form of hunting and you can come up with some technique or some strategy that other people will poo poo on and say, Oh, I don't agree with that. Well, that's fine and all, but when it ends up in finger pointing and name calling, then I don't personally don't think we do anything but undermine ourselves and we sure don't help the resource.
2: Yeah, it's refreshing to hear an academics such as yourself address uh, how combative and uh, the internal fighting that can happen amongst so-called you know, brother hunters, right? Uh, every Facebook forum and, and things like that can be some of the most divisive and, and hate-filled social media content you, you will ever see. And I'm sure you get your fill on, uh, on Instagram.
1: I get it on all three platforms. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's okay. Too bad. Well, you know, I tell you what's the saddest thing for me is that people will say things to me and to colleagues and, and friends on social media that I know they don't have the skin and gumption to stand there into my face and say it. And I I've told my kids from the time they were young and started interacting on social media, I've told my students, do not say anything you wouldn't stand there and say to somebody's face Um, because you never know when you're going to end up in front of that person for one thing. But two, that's the definition. One to me is one definition of being a man or a woman and showing humanity is and being professional in your behavior is if you're willing to type it, you better be willing to speak it. Uh, and in 99% of the cases, that's not, you know, that wouldn't happen. And that to me is the most unfortunate part of social media is that it is so divisive sometimes, and it would not be if we were sitting in front of each other, because you and, you know, as well as I do, we would figure out a way to be more professional and more courteous to each other, even if we disagreed with each other and we would figure out a way to shake hands at the end of this conversation, or at least acknowledge, thank you for talking with me. I disagree with what you're saying, but we'll move on. And as you know, with social media, there is is often a never, there's never a move on. There's a, a, a constant back and forth, back and forth, that just doesn't happen when you're in person with somebody, because as you know, talking with somebody verbally and, you know, to their face is, that's very much different and can be difficult. Social media is not, you just type, type and send, you know?
0: Yeah, it's definitely an unfortunate reality. And I think with everything, there's kind of a yin and a yang and social media has got a lot of negatives. Um, also got a lot of positives. I mean, that's how I've met half the guys that are affiliated with my company. It's how we connected, you know, on, on this platform. So it, it's, there's a good and a bad to all of it. And I think there's a responsibility, and just like I really like what you said about, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna be willing to type it, you better be willing to speak it, and, and yeah. That, that, yeah. that holds some weight and some gravity. And I think it's important, especially for the younger generations as they come up. You know, I was probably the first generation that kind of grew up with it. Um, you know, I think Facebook happened when I was in high school, and uh, and now there's folks that, that literally since they were born, it's it's been here and it's been on the on the landscape, so to speak.
1: Yeah, you know, and it, un, unfortunately, I see this with, you know, I've, I've seen it with students that I've taught. I've seen it with my own kids. It's much easier to communicate in, in many people's eyes through social media because there is no interaction. The interaction is, 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 is it's not, it's removed. You know, you're Snapchatting with somebody, you're taking a picture. Uh, you can say whatever you want. There are no repercussions like there would have been when I was a teenager. When, if I had said some of the things I've seen written on social media, I would have gotten a punch upside the head. Um, and that, you know, that doesn't, or minimally I would have been told, you know, Hey man, you need to shut up, you know? Uh, and I would have had to have discussed the situation and, and, you know, there's an out for that now. You can just click send and walk off. You put your phone down or you shut your laptop. And if you don't ever want to go back to that engagement, you don't have to. And that's just not the way we work as human beings. Y'all know that. I mean, you, you get into a conversation with your wife. If you just said, I'm done with this. Goodbye. Walk out of the room. How does that end for you? Yeah, you know, I mean? That doesn't end well.
0: Not well. Yeah. I'm but great. we do that. We
1: do that <laughs> every day on social media we pull the plug on conversations we li- we lose the engagement we actually walk off from the engagement we do it knowingly and we don't even try to reengage and that's that's the that's one of the problems with social media it has so many positives like you just said Luke but it that's the negative and that one of the big negatives to me is that it's so easy to marginalize people and disengage without offering you know professionalism and courtesy that we just, that we would offer in person if we were sitting there talking. Yeah. It's communication without consequence at sure. least. Yeah. You know, and, and Type whatever you want. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. But unfortunately there's real world consequences on the other end of that, that message, especially in, in the youth and the, the kids coming up today. But
1: sure. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: But we're coming up uh, just past an hour here and I'd be remiss uh, as a fairly new Fella, out to Colorado, I, I got to ask you a question or two on Miriam's because I have no clue what I'm doing out here. Um, you know, as far as you know, I understand. Colorado is kind of unique because we have Rios in the east, and then uh-huh. um, and Miriam's up, up in the west, west of 25, and the on the front range and, and further. And so, kind of understand what I'm looking for for uh, Rios, looking at the riparian zones, looking for water. They're going to be down there in those those bottoms. When I'm looking at Miriams and I'm looking at the landscape, what are some things that, whether through like on the ground scouting through e-scouting, what am I looking for? I mean, obviously, food, water, shelter, but what is primarily those things that Miriams are are drawn to habitat-wise?
1: The key is roost sites um, with Miriams in most areas, particularly as you go a little farther north of you. But roost sites are critical and. The the thing you'll realize with Merriams is those suckers move, man. They they hit the ground and they cover some some territory in a day. So what I usually do with Rio's, I mean with Merriams, is is I'm almost like I'm pronghorn hunting. I'm trying to figure out where they're headed, and I'm getting in front of them because if you're trying to chase them, you'll never catch them. Um, but I have found that if you're willing to take the time to scout them they tend to be pretty predictable in, in some cases as to where they're headed and how they're going to get there. It may not be on your time clock, but, but they are, if you can find their roost locations, they, they can be predictable. You know, you can, you, if you spend a little bit of time with some glass in your hand, you can figure out where they're headed and what they're doing. Uh, I love hunting Merriams that I, I go on I, the last few years I've been on a trip each spring this year it's it's a monster trip because I, I love going i'd rather i'd rather go out there and hunt than do almost anything it's so much fun and the birds are gorgeous and the landscapes they live in are cool and it's so different from what i, I see here in the east and you know so i get a kick out of it and i have a lot of fun with it because you cover so much ground and you walk a lot and that's a, that's always fun for me so i say Pattern that roost, figure out where they're headed, and you better be in front of them and not, not behind them. Is there a specific,
0: is there something specific they're looking for when they're picking their roost? Is it, do they prefer like the Ponderosa pine versus the aspens, or is there, do you notice any trends with that, or is it just the, a big tree?
1: It really depends on what part of the range. There's been some research in, you know, in the Black Hills showing that they, they prefer certain trees. If you go towards the, like the prairies, that have Merriam's, they tend to be cottonwoods and, and, you know, and other species that are along those riparian areas. Ponderosa pine, absolutely. Um, You know, Merriam's are not any different than Easterns or Rio's. They have selected roost sites and they're going to continue to use them uh, to a greater extent than Easterns do. Easterns use a lot of different roosts, but Rio's and Merriam's tend to not use as many in many cases because they don't have as many in their home range that are suitable. So, in my experience, and I haven't, I'm not hunted in Colorado actually, but everywhere else I've hunted Merriam's finding the roost locations and being willing to figure out how those birds were leaving the roost and then where they were headed. That was always helpful for me. That's what, that's the way I go after them. Awesome. That's great information. I'll, uh,
0: I'm actually getting ready to leave for a few months, but when I get back, I'm going to, or next season, I mean, I'll put that to use. I went up and did some, tried to do some scouting last year, and I didn't even really know where to start, to be honest. It's uh, just so different the topography and the landscape, looking yeah. at it from, you know, versus being yeah. out east, and there's not near as many. I wasn't hearing any gobbles. Like it was just a lot different.
1: Yeah, and Merriam's, you have to understand too, they, they will often shift their range from winter to spring a long ways, miles. Uh, there's, there's research has shown that sometimes they'll move 30 or 40 miles from their winter range to their spring range. So you may literally be scouting a week too early and not have any birds on your site. And then all of a sudden they're there or conversely, you're, you know, you're scouting a group of birds and then all of a sudden that flock splits up and they're 20 miles away a few days later. So I usually, you know, the later you can wait to scout for, for that bird is better just to make sure you're not patterning birds that won't be there, you know, when it's time to show up to hunt. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Dr. Chamberlain, I had, uh, another random question out of left field before, before we wrap this up, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this as a, as a fellow Georgian. Um, I was wondering if I could pick your thoughts on the Georgia season being pushed back, uh, this year and the, and the limit being dropped. Um, to uh, two birds and, and kind of the impact that's going to have on Georgia as a whole. Like, do, do you feel positively or how, how do you feel about the changes?
1: Well, I mean what the agency was, you know, the, the bag limit change they made, there was, they had done surveys for a number of years and there was broad support for reducing the bag limit from three to two. Um, there was not as much support for moving the season dates later although there was quite a bit of support. And for that's I mean, the reason's obvious guys, you know, I mean, we want to hunt, we want to be out there and we want to hunt. And I've gotten this question from a lot of people, you know, what do you think? And, and here's, here's what I think. Do I want to lose opportunity? No, I don't want to lose opportunity. I want to be able to hunt when it, you know, Uh, am I willing to tolerate it and see kind of how things shake out? Yes. Because you know the agency is trying to control what they can control at a spatial scale at which they manage the bird and that's the state of Georgia they don't manage across a county or your farm or anything they manage across the state and they the agency can only impact harvest at that spatial scale they can't make private landowners manage their properties a certain way they can't control predators across the entire state so like it or not we have to recognize that harvest is what the agencies look at, whether it's turkeys or any other game species, they, they, they control what they can control. So the bag limit change, you know, they felt would, would not affect many hunters because so few, uh, not many hunters, well, acknowledge that they fill their, their, their bag. So Doesn't that bother change, me.
2: I don't come close. Ever. Yeah. I yeah. T- me, either, <laughs> me either
1: here. Um, the season, you know, pushing the season later that, The idea with that was simply the recognition that uh, the season in in Georgia had been opening several weeks before biology of the bird said it should open based on work done 40 years ago that, that we've known. And the agency felt like, you know, with the declines in the population, they needed to make a change and try to keep some of those toms alive later into the breeding season um, in hopes that that would make a measurable impact on productivity. Will it? I honestly don't know. We'll, we'll, see it. It's not going to be a one year fix. I can tell you, you know, the thinking that we'll change a season here or there and next year we'll see this dramatic, you know, change. That's just, that's not reality. You know, these changes will take time to see if they have any effect whatsoever. Um, and unfortunately we're kind of in a waiting game you know me included you know last last weekend was supposed to be the opener and um private land opens this coming weekend and you know for for many many of us here in georgia we would have been in the field for days now doing you know what we love to do and and this year we're not able to and moving forward we're not going to be able to you know for the for the short term anyway we're going to have to see how the changes pan out and what happens. And then, you know, honestly, guys, I hope we do see an impact. I really do. Because if we don't, that's going to leave the agency searching for other answers. And I hope we we see that the changes will matter and we'll see some changes, you know, some improvements to the population. And if we do, great. It, It was worth the sacrifice. I'm more concerned if we don't. If we don't, then uh you, you know agencies they are legally charged with manning for sust- managing for sustainability of these species and if populations are declining and they continue to decline they're not sustainable and that's going to mandate that they make additional changes so i really i'm i have my fingers crossed and i'm praying that we will we will see that it will matter
2: yeah absolutely and across the board no matter what species you look at all of us just want to be in the field i see you're over your left shoulder there all of us just want to be in the field and hunt right as as much as sure, as, as sure. possible and if the science backs that then i will i am more than willing to sacrifice two weeks or you know one less tag or whatever the science says or like you said if it, if it doesn't show an immediate fix things may get more drastic
1: right 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 yeah and i think we all would you know i'd I say this, I've said this on many podcasts, you know, we all want the same thing. We all, everybody that turkey hunts wants the same thing. They want to be able to go hunt the bird and they want, you know, a lot of birds out there and they want to hear a lot of gobbling and they want to be successful. We, we want to kill birds. That's the bottom line. We want to harvest turkeys. And if we can't do that, then we're frustrated. We, and we have every right to be frustrated. But at the end of the day, if if we have to change our behavior a little bit in a way that's going to improve the future for the bird then i think we all should look step back and say okay can i change the way i behave am i willing to do that to benefit the resource and i would like to i would like to hope that every turkey hunter may not they may not like it but they'd be willing to do it this
0: has got me thinking about one one last question uh so I was down at Fort Benning and was part of the wild uh, hog trapping program down there that was managed by the biologist. And there's a USDA USD, uh, trapper that was down there. as the. And they were, I remember we were talking about turkeys and with the I'm
1: a, massive... I'm walking across the kitchen here because my battery's about to die. Oh, Go
0: no ahead. worries at all. And so with the massive spike in the wild pig population you know, over the past 20, 30 years, there's been a direct correlation, I think, uh, at, on Fort Benning proper they were saying that the wild turkey population has declined by 70%. And so do we see, is there like a direct correlation across kind of that, wherever that line of where we see the feral hog explosion, uh, it's moving north, is there a direct correlation with the dropping in the, the turkey population there? Because like where I'm at in Virginia, I don't, and granted it's very anecdotal, but I feel like we're covered up in turkeys. Um, and the science might say something different, but I mean, we've got them, I feel like I see more now than I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. Flocks yeah. all over the place. But I did feel like when I was down in this, in uh, Fort Benning or I do a lot of hunting in East Texas, like their turkey populations seemed to be really hurting. And so is that, a, could that be pig related? Is there other factors? We, as-
1: yeah, we don't think there's a direct link. Although, you know, pigs are a problem and that's not it. We don't see that pigs are an important nest predator at all. They're not preying on nests very much at all. My concern with pigs is just competition for forage resources. You know, pigs can scarf up acorns at a ridiculous rate. And if they're doing that, then they're reducing the quality of the the landscape for the bird. Um, That's my concern with pigs. Are they part of the problem? Very likely, yes, because they're competing for resources that are now more limited than they were. So, you know, if you look at the southeastern United States, how much hardwood forest has been lost in the 20 years, in the last 20 years, and then you add feral pigs to scarfing up resources within those forests, then yes, they could certainly be part of the, the issue. Um, there, and there's some ongoing work now seeing whether pigs are kind of displacing turkeys in a way where, you know, they're not using the same parts of the landscape. I, I'll be curious to see what that work shows myself.
0: That's really interesting. And I, I'd be interested as well. I've got a, I've spent a lot of time over the past few years hunting pigs. And so I'm I'm definitely interested in, in that science. But but Dr. Chairman, this has been phenomenal. Uh, we really appreciate your time. We'll go ahead and, and wrap this one up. I'll, I'll turn it over to, to Carter and John real quick. Uh, you guys got any closing uh, comments or questions? Uh,
2: no, I, I really appreciate the time. I really appreciate you uh, getting back to me on on Instagram. That was kind of a Hail Mary Wishful thinking kind of message. Um, we've been following you for several years, so it's kind of surreal. Uh, three regular turkey hunters getting able to talk to the wild turkey doc. Um,
1: I try to respond to everybody. <laughs> um, I don't. I can't. I don't. I know I don't, but I try. I try to respond to everybody. Uh, well, with that many followers, join I
2: know it's not easy. I know it's not easy. So I guess I'll just emulate what Stephen says, says about your page and. You're the only page on Instagram worth following. So, <laughs> no. Well, he he
1: rescinded that statement and said that um, that nature's metal is another one of his favorites, and that is a cool. Also, slide.
2: an interesting page. Yeah. Yeah,
1: that I I follow that page. It's pretty incredible.
2: <laughs> That's pretty gnarly, but yeah. Thank you again for your time. Not, not right, a problem, guys. It, it's good to be with you. Yeah, if you're up for it, we'd love to have you back on whenever you want.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Just reach out to me. Absolutely, John. I have nothing. Thanks for the input.
3: I'm sure we're going to take everything that you gave us. As Carter said, his gospel probably this coming season. And I wish you and all listeners good luck as uh, turkey season's open across the U.S.
1: Yeah, same to you guys. Good luck to you.
0: Yeah, uh, hopefully we can have you back on. We'd love – my uh, my cousin Perry usually runs co-host, and he was also a fisheries and wildlife science major at Virginia Tech. So he would okay. definitely nerd out. He gave me a list of questions. I think I hit a couple of them, but he was pretty sore. He could even miss this one since so he's a – Dig into the, the ecology and biology side of things, but, right. but yeah, thank you so much. And, uh, where can folks find you? We've mentioned it a couple of times, but what's your, your full Instagram?
1: Yeah. On Instagram and Twitter, it's just, uh, at wild Turkey doc, just wild Turkey DOC one word on Facebook. If you just search on my name, um, if you search on Mike Chamberlain, you'll, you'll find me. Um, I think it's like the second, one first, second, or third page that you come to of that name. And, uh, I post the same content on all three platforms within reason, obviously Twitter's character limited and, um, but try to post the same information. I tend to post more personal information on Instagram than either of the other two. I don't, I don't put personal stuff on Facebook anymore. Um, but yeah, if you, if you want to reach out to me on those platforms, I'll, uh, I'll try to respond to you. And if you have questions and I mean, obviously you can email me too, if you just go to, university of Georgia's homepage and search on my name. I mean, you'll come to my, my faculty page and, you know, shoot me an email. I'm, I'm pretty responsive to emails too. I'm actually more responsive to emails than I am, um, messaging on social media because I don't get as many emails. The, uh, the messages, you know, on social media are are frankly overwhelming uh, to be honest. Um, which is good. It's good that people are interested and they want information. I, I'm very humbled by that. It's just hard to respond to, you know, to, to all of it. Um, despite the fact that I really want to.
0: Yeah, I understand that completely. It can get a little, little overwhelming and daunting and I don't have near the following you do. So, uh, we definitely appreciate you taking the effort to, to reach out and, and once again for your time for coming on, um, everybody listening. Thank you so much. As always, we appreciate y'all give, a uh, if you don't already, head over to at huntlift Defi- Hunt, eat official, excuse me, and give us a follow on Instagram. But as always, thank you.